You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Spiritualism, Madame Blavatsky and Theosophy, an Eyewitness View of Occult History, selected and introduced by Christopher Bamford. This is Lecture 1, entitled Theosophy and Spiritualism, given in Berlin on February 1st, 1904. People have always asked questions about the soul's origin and destiny questions that are today considered religious, theological, or theosophical. In earlier times, however, a science of daily life accompanied research into the spiritual world. Such questions were not then considered special. In those days there were, in quotes, knowers who researched spiritual life and whose knowledge didn't concern just the facts and laws of outer nature and the science of material life. People who knew about natural phenomena and natural laws also knew the science of spiritual life. Spiritual guides were not one-sided then. Almost everyone had an overview of the whole realm of knowledge. No one would have dared make an authoritative pronouncement about any question, say in the realm of zoology, without also knowing about the higher questions of spiritual life. Things changed with the 16th century, when religious questions and the contributions of the sciences separated. This opposition between faith and science, between religion and experience, reached its peak in the 19th century. Thus many knowledgeable people place the beginning of the scientific age sometime in the 1830s, a period rightly identified as one of the most momentous in human history. People point with pride to the achievements of natural science in understanding natural laws and in controlling natural processes. It has been right it has rightly been said that the preceding millennia were no match for the nineteenth century in this regard, especially in relation to the question of human nature and destiny. The landscape changed drastically. One side effect of this powerful scientific development is that we have lost sight of spiritual life. The harmony that reigned between the two aspects of knowledge was lost. The harmony between a science interested in the outer facts of the material world and a science concerned with the realities of the soul is no longer available to us today. It is a curious fact that 19th century science became completely powerless in relation to the great questions of existence. Questions of the soul, the life of soul and spirit. It is remarkable, too, that precisely in our time, our best scientists can be of no help regarding the higher spiritual sciences. When we ask scientists about problems of the soul, for instance, about human free will, they cannot give an explanation. Our age has been called materialistic, our science in other respects so perfect, 
restricts itself to whatever can be achieved by using only the outer senses, or what can be calculated, or made accessible through a combination of external perceptions. Knowledge of nature and knowledge of the life of the soul no longer go hand in hand. Consider psychology, the, quote, science of the soul, close quote. It is as if a great impotence had overcome it. Go from university to university, from professor to professor. What you will find there will be of no help whatsoever regarding the burning questions of our being. Characteristically, the so-called scientists of the soul have a slogan that is meaningful only in a, the reductionist way a slogan can be meaningful. Starting with the historian of materialism, Friedrich Albert Lange, the formula, quote, a science of the soul without the soul, close quote, has set the tone. This slogan describes the condition of psychology in the second half of the 19th century. It expresses the idea that the human soul and its properties are nothing but the outer expression of the mechanical workings of sensory natural forces in our organism. A clock consists of wheels and gears that help the hands move forward. So the movements of the hands result from strictly mechanical processes. Our psychologists treat our soul life with its wishes, desires, passions, representations, concepts, and ideas in the same way, as if it were merely the result of physical processes comparable to the ongoing motion of the hands of a clock. For them our soul life has no basis other than the clockwork in our brain that modern science has so clearly described. There is nothing wrong with the scientific field of brain physiology. I am the first to acknowledge that it passes all the tests. But even if we may say that a clock is a set of mechanical gears, we still cannot forget that where there is a clock, there is a clockmaker. It would be as implausible to speak of a clock without a clockmaker as it is to speak of a science of the soul without the soul. The latter is not just a formula, but in fact characterizes a whole spirit of research and thinking, the entire frame of mind of the nineteenth century, which looks at the soul and explains it as a mechanism while eliminating the spirit. It is no wonder that those turn elsewhere who seek out of a deep compulsion of the heart and soul to answer such questions as where do human beings come from? Where what is the fate of the soul? It is no wonder that such people feel alienated from what is offered them under the label of psychology by those who should have a theory about the soul. For whatever we find in textbooks about the soul is nothing remotely like a teaching about the soul. Nor is it surprising, then, that precisely at the time when official science became so impotent in face of their questions, those who sought knowledge about the spirit and the soul should seek to satisfy their thirst in para-scientific ways. Nor should it surprise us if such a para-science of soul and spirit takes its stand far removed from the modern science of materialism, which is deaf and mute deafened to any approach other than its own, and mute 
when asked to speak of the soul. Even where there is goodwill, official science is impotent when it comes to the soul. This is so true that when it has come to a pitched battle between spiritualism and materialism, as for instance between Wagner and Folkt, the contest has ended to the benefit of the materialists. In fact, unfortunately, the materialists' arguments against spiritualism are entirely valid, since from the point of view of rigorous research, the spiritualists' argument is completely untenable. Even when scholars of goodwill, working in the light of Weber's true spiritual science, asked questions about the human soul, they proved to be ineffectual. To that extent, the phrase, quote, a science of the soul without the soul, close quote, is more than a rhetorical phrase. For science has, in effect, lost the very concept of what the soul really is. If you ask for the opinion of the most famous psychologists of our time, you will find the same thing as you find with Wagner. Psychologists have nothing to say, for they can no longer imagine what the soul is. Not only have they come up with the formula, soul science without the soul, but also the essence of the soul has altogether disappeared from their field of vision. It is important to appreciate fully the significance of this fact if we intend to understand the development of the spiritualist or spiritist movements. Ever since the beginning of the materialist era, which was greeted enthusiastically by some and fought tooth and nail by others, there has been a counter-movement, the spiritualist movement. Materialism and spiritualism belong together, as north and south poles belong together in a magnetic compass. If mainstream scientists can tell us nothing about the soul, people must turn to other researchers for information. And since the question of the soul has such irresistible momentum, all the objections that could be made against spiritualism were in the end powerless in stopping it. Today, then, I would like to examine what stand we as theosophists should take toward the enthusiastic propagandists of spiritualism and toward the arguments of its opponents. I am working on the hypothesis that spiritualism is a necessary phenomenon. Whenever we study this question, we must be fully aware that it was not a coincidence, but rather a necessary development necessary simply in the manner of its appearance. At the outset, we shall have to disregard the fact that most people who occupied themselves with spiritualist manifestations were dilettantes. We shall look instead at the fact that some significant and well-respected scientists and scholars have taken a sympathetic stand toward spiritualism. If you allow me, I would like to take a quick detour Instead of looking at spiritualist phenomena, I would like to look at those who studied spiritualism and judged it favorably, and who also exercised a significant influence in the realm of materialistic science. These scientists share many other people's dissatisfaction with the concept of a science of the soul without the soul, and have achieved much more than the strict materialists have. We are certainly entitled to ask, isn't it 
of considerable significance that a scientist of such impeccable credentials as the great English chemist Crookes has come out fully in favor of spiritualism? Sir William Crookes is a scientist of unusual stature. He has made highly important contributions to the investigation of chemical laws and the chemical structure of the elements. He has not only had an impact in the field of research, but he also has considerable achievements in the realm of practical applications. This great scientist, then, has been involved in spiritualistic experiments. Some people have argued that his observations were not precise enough. The argument is of little significance and merely displaces the question, for the question in this case is not whether Crookes's experiments were precise, but rather whether Crookes, the great chemist, knew the extent to which nature obeys physical laws, how far those apply, and whether they constitute obstacles to a science of the soul gained by way of spiritualistic experiments. The question is whether high achievements in the natural sciences should prevent a person from attempting to gain scientific knowledge in the field of spiritualism. The real question is this. What does it mean for us to call Crookes a precise scientist if we question his experiments in the field of spiritualism? It is almost as if we have to construct a double Crookes, a morning Crookes and an afternoon Crookes, as it were. In the morning, when Crookes busies himself with chemistry, he is thought to be of sound intellect. In the afternoon, when he devotes himself to his spiritualistic experiments, he is said to be insane. This is obviously absurd, but the academic scientists refuse to acknowledge it. Another scholar is the English scientist Wallace, a founder of the theory of evolution. Darwin and Wallace discovered the great idea of the theory of Darwinism independently of each other. In fact, if we study Wallace's books, we find that his way of approaching the question was even more remarkable than Darwin's. No one has questioned his contributions in this realm, but because he later expressed orally and in writing his opinion that spiritualist phenomena are real, he is, as it were, split in two. On one hand he fights for his scientific theory, and on the other he fights for his theory of the soul which is of a similar nature to the one Crookes elaborated in his experimental teaching about the soul. This Wallace is then likewise spoken of everywhere as a poor, deranged person, because he was interested in spiritualism and spoke approvingly of it. Intellectual dwarves absolutely refuse to consider the intellectual approach and inclination of these two great men. The fact that a researcher in the field of spiritualism can also stand in the upper ranks of natural science, as is the case with these two figures, is what encouraged me to look at the issue as a matter of personalities. In fact, the main difference between the nineteenth century and all earlier centuries is that these highly important questions were treated like scientific questions. For these scientists, there is nothing in the least impossible about extending natural scientific research to the areas of soul and spirit. 
It is, therefore, not illegitimate to refer to them as authorities in these areas, for the reason is not whether their observations were precise or not, but simply what they considered possible and impossible. The exactitude or incorrectness of an experiment can always be established later. It is possible to ascertain later, under different conditions, what was done wrong the first time around. The question then is simply this. Can one oppose this kind of psychology from a scientific point of view? There is not yet a scientific psychology on record, and the weakest and most insignificant writings of nineteenth-century scientists have been their attacks on spiritualism. There may be a number of people here who disagree with me on this, but if they are objective, they will concede one thing. Even if the writings against spiritualism are correct, all of them till now have been trivial and unscientific, for it is possible to be right and still write stupid stuff. Having established from a cultural-historical point of view the necessity of the spiritualist movement, let us look a little at the differences between the spiritualist movement and other attempts to study phenomena of the soul. You all know that a theosophical movement has existed since 1875. Just as spiritualism has done for the last 40 years, theosophy has been busy establishing as a solid truth that the material world is not all there is, but that there are higher beings, real facts and beings, that cannot be reached and investigated solely by the external senses. Spiritualism has its own methods for investigating the existence of a spiritual soul world. Theosophy is also interested in these higher worlds. It is a simple historical fact that before they started working in a theosophical manner, the founders of the theosophical movement were part of the spiritualist movement. Helena Petrovna Blavatsky and Colonel Alcott, the great messengers of the theosophical movement, came out of the spiritualist movement, and some people have equipped that the early theosophical society was a society of discontented spiritualists. In fact, all Blavatsky and Alcott were seeking was the truth about the spiritual realm, and they came to the conclusion that theosophy was the right approach. What they changed was the method, the research techniques. I shall not go there. I shall not go here into the reasons for the change. All spiritualist and religious movements seek to establish that there is a higher spiritual life, that something spiritual lives in the human being, that the human being itself is of a spiritual nature, and that life between birth and death is merely one part of the whole human life. In short, they want to establish that human beings are more than physical beings. This is what all researchers, whether theosophic or spiritualist, seek to prove. This is what they share. It is the object of their common striving. And in attaining this goal, they encounter each other so as to offer a necessary counterweight to the materialist stream. Truth cannot be attained on separate paths, but only in full unity, in harmonious striving. And for that we need to know not only the common goal, but also the common sources of both movements. 
This is familiar to those who have been able to penetrate more deeply into the inner forces of the spiritual movement. What we see on the outside, all that lies immediately before our eyes when we look at the spiritual movements, takes place in the world of effects, not causes. The spiritual researcher knows that many of the things played out before our senses have their causes in much higher spiritual worlds. In a way, we move about in the sensory world like blind people, without the slightest notion of what is happening in the wings, where higher spiritual powers are pulling the threads. Thus the true spiritual scientist recognizes the common roots of spiritualism and theosophy. Anyone following human evolution with open spiritual eyes knows that humanity's spiritual life is subject to evolution just as its physical nature is. There are huge differences in the gradations in sensory development as well as in the scale of spiritual development. There are highly developed natures in human beings. Those who have found them can testify to that. Such great natures are the leaders of spiritual evolution. They are not only, as Schopenhauer said, an ideal brotherhood holding hands over the ages. They also constitute an actual society of individualities working together and influencing each other. The theosophist is aware of their existence and calls them the great brotherhood of adepts. If we honestly believe in evolution, we must at least believe in this as a possibility. But those who have experienced it can testify that it really exists. Materialism peaked around the middle of the 19th century. Higher beings then saw that a materialist tide was unavoidable and that they would need to provide the counterforces. They were not in the least critical of this materialist movement, knowing that modern technology would make powerful, much-needed progress in the process. This is why we should not fight the materialist movement. But the destructiveness of materialist science in respect to the soul demanded that a counterpole be provided, a spiritual stream to act as a counterpart to the material stream in humanity. In its first stage, this spiritual wave took the form of spiritualist phenomena. Human beings had to be shown that there was something other than what natural science could grasp with its means. Those brothers, adepts, who were able to read the signs of the times, who have always been the leaders of humanity, were also responsible for sending tidal waves of spiritualism upon humanity. Such brothers work across the centuries. Unknown, misunderstood, neglected, they step forward as individuals to perform immeasurable deeds for humanity. As long as humanity in its greater mass looks for leadership among scientists who can provide no information about burning spiritual questions, these older brothers can still lead spiritual humanity into the secret mysteries. They send their messengers into the world, messengers whom only occultists may recognize. Many people who study history run into these spiritual currents, 
which are inexplicable to purely materialistic research, but become transparent when examined by the right spiritual scientist. In the 19th century, things certainly changed, precisely because the leaders of science abdicated their responsibility, it became necessary to provide visible proof for the existence of the spiritual world. It happened, however, that the three decades of the spiritualist movement, from 1840 to 1870, brought to the surface very different interests than those that were intended. Please don't object that the wise leaders made an error, since they should have anticipated those developments. This question must be approached differently. What happened was that the interests that attached themselves at first to the spiritual phenomena were interests of a purely purely personal, human nature. It turned out that people were most interested in communication with the dead, which was not what the messengers were meant to bring to humanity. The purpose of spiritualist phenomena was not the satisfaction of human curiosity, no matter how beautiful and noble. Instead, they were meant to bring humanity insights that properly applied would have led to a higher spiritual life. Unfortunately, the movement fell prey to voyeurism, and research about spiritual matters was conducted in a manner unlikely to contribute to humanity's edification. This is why the Theosophical movement needed to be created. Let me say briefly what this is all about. Purely natural forces do not create human beings. What constitutes human nature, the sheath of the soul and spiritual life, is not the product of purely physical forces. Wisdom created the world. Wisdom also created each individual human being. I can only sketch this out today. It would take a special lecture to develop it in detail. You know that natural forces alone will not bring about so much as a clock because human intelligence is required to effect the required combination. It is perfectly correct to say that when we investigate the human organism, we find no God, no divine creation, merely natural forces. Even a little reflection is enough to make clear that you will not see the spiritual creative forces. When you study a clock, Likewise, you can explain it in a completely mechanical way, yet you are, in the end, faced with the necessity of asking about the human intelligence, the clockmaker who built it, whom you would never find inside the clock. This proves that the question is badly put. This comparison of the human organism with a clock is valid, of course, but it must be applied correctly. This means that just as a clock and its mechanism cannot happen without the spiritual influence of its maker, neither can the human spirit, the highest flower, the highest unfolding of the forces responsible for building the human organism, appear without the spiritual influence of its creator. The human soul, the highest that the spirit has created out of the physical body, 
required the creation within the human organism of a foundation for the flowering of organic life, the human spirit. Just think what was required, I am speaking metaphorically, to lay the foundation within this human soul for the flower of organic life, the human spirit. It is easy to imagine that these so-called builders, these lawful builders of the organism, could have stopped building at a lower level, that they might not have bothered to put together the complicated human organism that the human soul needs. But let us go back to before the evolution of the human soul. We shall find that these beings are full of wisdom. It also becomes clear that the forces whose work created these beings, are just as invisible to us human beings as the clockmakers are to the clock. Human beings know as little about spiritual powers, forces, and beings carefully working to prepare a dwelling place for the soul as the mechanical gears of the clock know about the clockmaker's spiritual activity. Spiritual forces built our organism, and they are still at work within us. The very same forces that formed our organism in such a way that it breathes, its blood circulates, it digests, it concentrates tissues and forces in the brain, and it makes the brain a suitable tool for the soul, all these spiritual forces are still operating. But no more than we can see gravity or magnetism can we see the creative forces that are revealed in our passions, desires, wishes, and instincts. And just as little can we see the creative forces that work in building the organism. Try to imagine that the human being has not yet come to a point at which it is filled with what I have mentioned earlier as clear consciousness. Put yourself back into a time when these forces of consciousness had not taken possession of the human organism. Before our highly evolved brain could be formed in the course of evolution, other forms of the brain evolved. And these forms are still present in us, overlaid and regulated by the highly evolved brain of the contemporary human being. The spiritual makers of the world built up the human nature of desire and drive in ways that were unconscious to the human being. This is a nature human beings share with animals. Its flowering is the stuff of the soul. Even now, the spiritual beings that, are, that built us are active. They are beside us, within us, as real and effective as this lamp here is real and effective in the physical world. We move about in our physical world, and we know about the things of it because of our clear consciousness. Many beings live all around us, left over from earlier stages of being. Just as human beings have continued to evolve, specific beings have stayed and built their own spiritual world, but they are evolving also. Just as our consciousness has evolved, up to our own level and clarity, so too does their evolution continue. It is impossible to deny our consciousness the possibility of further evolution. 
And when the human being evolves to an even higher level of consciousness than the present day, excuse me, than the present clear consciousness, we will again recognize the spiritual worlds that surround us at all times. There are two ways to acquire knowledge about the spiritual world around us. The first is to research what happens to the human being when clear consciousness is switched off. This clear consciousness is like a light that spreads over the spiritual influences surrounding us. We don't see them because of the glare of our clear human consciousness. If we turn this off, however, we move closer to the spiritual beings that helped build us before we had it. In this way we learn that evolution does not just ascend, but also descends and moves in circles. Wherever we turn off our rational consciousness, we, as it were, move back to earlier stages of our evolution, when we were still more spiritual, whereas now we stand above that sphere. We really do come from a spiritual world, and this spiritual world has prepared the dwelling of the soul in the physical world. By turning back, as it were, the level that we have attained, we are in a certain way closer to the gods. This is one way. It is the way of spiritualism. The other way, the way of modern consciousness, is the one that theosophy chooses. Theosophy does not seek to investigate the spiritual world by turning off consciousness, but rather by developing it further, heightening it. The theosophist's ideal is to obtain information about the spiritual world surrounding us while retaining the continuity of evolution, the emphasis on clear consciousness. This is the difference between theosophical students and spiritualist mediums. Mediums bring us information from the spiritual world by acting as tools of the spiritual world. They hand themselves over as organs, intermediaries or mouthpieces for the spiritual world. Theosophical researchers seek to take clear consciousness up to the heights where they will once again perceive the spiritual worlds. Theosophical researchers would consider it an insult to human autonomy, an obstacle to the human right of self-determination, to renounce the level of the clear consciousness that has been attained in the natural course of things. They do not wish to put themselves back into a condition passed through in earlier evolutionary stages. The truths experienced in the state of, quote, disconnected consciousness, close quote, are quite possibly incontrovertible. The correctness of the results of spiritualist experiments may be unquestionable. But this still leaves open whether it is right or advisable to use this method of investigation. The question there is whether it is in conformity with the laws of evolution and with the intentions of the cosmic powers, to try to turn back the clock of nature, to undo steps that have already been taken. Nature does not advance arbitrarily, and human beings should not willfully turn back evolutionary developments that nature has already effected in them.
We do not want to investigate truth out of pure curiosity, using incorrect, underhanded methods, but rather by using the way that the higher cosmic powers have shown us, the path on which our clear consciousness leads us. Therefore the striving of the Theosophical movement is not to listen to those who bring us revelations out of the unconscious or the subconscious, but rather to listen to those who speak out of the full, clear, waking consciousness. Those who stand in the Theosophical movement and have direct experiences of truth have obtained that truth only through the use of the full, clear, waking consciousness. Theosophists are not allowed to disconnect from their consciousness even for a moment. A greater development of consciousness, full, clear observation of the kind initiates have trained for, must be the object of a theosophist's striving. If we attain that goal, we shall fulfill our human vocation. Why should we put more trust in a medium speaking in a trance than in a person speaking out of the fullness of waking consciousness? Trust is needed in any case. It is actually more comfortable to investigate by disconnecting one's consciousness. But it is worthier of the human being to adopt a method that preserves clear spiritual consciousness. This is why theosophists have favored the latter path. So, from the point of view of the theosophical movement, any work out of the unconscious or subconscious is inadequate. The theosophical movement, as we said, seeks to reach the spiritual world out of full consciousness, convinced that as spiritual beings, human beings, because of their place in evolution, are to various degrees dependent on the body. Therefore, Theosophy directs its attention to incarnated human beings who, while living in their bodies, can tap spiritual forces and attain spiritual vision by becoming temporarily independent of their physical organisms while fully conscious. The human being who is thus in control of the physical body has the possibility of collecting experiences of the spiritual world not by going back to a time before clear consciousness had evolved, but rather by moving forward in time to evolutionary stages when consciousness will be higher than the currently average human consciousness. The medium is a monument of the past. In earlier times all human beings were mediums. All had a capacity for astral perception. All were able to perceive the spiritual world. Over time, our clear waking consciousness was formed out of this astral consciousness. When human beings rise in these spiritual worlds, as all beings eventually must, we will once again step into this astral world, perceive in astral ways, clairvoyant again. But this is only a transitional stage. All evolutionary stages must be considered transitional. Our terrestrial course is a lesson that we must study thoroughly, that we must learn. We must not, therefore, be alienated from the world. We must not be hostile toward what is earthly, but rather live fully in the earth. We must recognize in the terrestrial element the same forces, the same beings that we perceive in the spiritual world. 
for those spiritual forces are at work in our earthly world. They weave through the human soul and influence the life forms of earthly reality. This was behind the allegory of the bees used by the priests of the ancient Greek mysteries. The allegory of the bees is meaningful for us, since it was the human soul that was being compared to the bees. Just as the bees are sent out of the hive to collect honey from the flowers, so the human soul is sent out of higher regions to collect experiences in the earthly realm. The bees' domain is the realm of the flowers. The human being's domain is the earth. It would make no sense for either bees or human beings to look for other gathering grounds and other regions that either do not offer the material the gatherers need or contain suitable material in inappropriate amounts. This is why the Theosophical movement has made the allegory of the bees a metaphor of its work, the striving for more highly evolved knowledge and the development of clear consciousness are the focus of all its activity as a way of ensuring human participation in spiritual worlds. The Theosophical Movement's purpose is the higher evolution of humankind. If this succeeds, those interests will be awakened in the human being that lead us further along. The motive is trying to know more about the spiritual world is not simple curiosity. Maybe that again. The motive in trying to know more about the spiritual world is not simple curiosity. And what we learn must give us the strength, the power, to reach the goal assigned us by cosmic powers. The spiritualist movement awakens in its followers the consciousness that the spiritual world exists. In this, theosophy and spiritualism agree, but the methods used to attain this goal differ. The reasons why the Theosophical Society does not approve spiritualist investigative methods can be summarized briefly. It is very dangerous at this stage of cosmic evolution to disconnect human consciousness. Given the whole course of cosmic evolution, the human being must be active with this consciousness on earth. If we switch it off, we are delivered powerless, without will, without consciousness, to the spiritual powers. Let me make a comparison. It makes a difference whether I step into a robber's den fully aware and in full control of my reason, or whether I enter it without this clarity of mind. This is true not only of the extreme case of the robber's den. It is like that for the whole world. We must grasp the things that come toward us with full clarity. We must not make ourselves into powerless tools, even of the spiritual powers, for the latter could use us for all kinds of purposes. This is what has led to the curtailing of the cultivation of mediumistic activities. Leading spiritualists are increasingly sensitive to the insight that to contact spiritual beings human beings must enter the spiritual world in full possession of their entire freedom. It can only be a matter of time before the methods of spiritual investigation developed by theosophists are adopted by the spiritualists. Theosophists and spiritualists both aim for clairvoyance. Theosophical students and spiritualist mediums are both tools. 
but the spiritualist medium is without will. Anyone who knows the dangers can describe what strong powers one has to encounter along the way. Powers that have destructive or oppressive influences. Powers that have useful influences, but also harmful ones. Things that were useful when human beings lived in their unconscious have become harmful. If we hand ourselves over powerless to the powers that built us up earlier, we become for better and for worse their instruments. Therefore, it is important that we never allow our consciousness to be clouded. Clear consciousness has enabled us to discover great truths in our research, whereas the spiritualist medium is more or less condemned to fishing in muddy waters. Clear consciousness enables us to know not only what takes us to our goal, but also what prevents us from getting there. Above all else, we must learn to find our way around the spiritual world. We must acquire the necessary information to make that possible, the information that is a precondition for knowledge of the spiritual world. If I want to be a good engineer, I had better study mathematics. If I want to be at home in the spiritual world, rather than be tumbled along helplessly, I must penetrate the fundamental theosophical truths. What the theosophists discovered in 1875 will bring more and more spiritualists to their side. The two currents need not fight each other, even if, as I showed, their methods are radically different. Rather, they must find harmony. Let the followers of one movement bring what they have to offer, and let the followers of the other bring what they have. Let both deposit it on the altar of humanity. In this way, both movements can really help humanity, whereas fighting each other would only lead to humanity's losing track of the larger goal. Cooperation between the two movements, not fighting, is needed and will lead to the common goal to raise humanity out of the materialistic stream of the present. This requires transmitting knowledge of the higher worlds, knowledge of eternity, of the soul's true nature, and of the possibilities afforded us to contemplate again the great spiritual forces of nature that show us the way. How few human beings there are with the self-knowledge to understand where we come from and where we are going, what the homeland of the soul is, which enables us to find what gives meaning to life. To gain all this, the human being must come to the convic conviction expressed by Johann Gottlieb Fichte when he said, quote, I do not need to be torn out of the earthly world to gain access to the supra-earthly. I already live in it now. I live in it much more truly than I do in the purely earthly, for I am my own solid anchor, and eternal life, long since mine, is the only ground upon which I can develop my earthly life. What they call the heavens does not lie on the other side of the grave. It is already cast all over our nature, and its light shines in every pure heart. Close quote. The end of Lecture 1.